It's become conventional wisdom that the Flint water crisis was allowed to happen due to racist negligence or even malice. And that's not wrong, but it's also not the whole story. When Rick Snyder was governor of Michigan, he installed unelected emergency managers in eight cities, six of which are predominantly black. It is also true that across these six cities, the average annual household income is below $25,000. It is simply impossible to imagine a newly elected governor inflicting austerity measures on an upper middle class white suburb. Martin County, Kentucky, on the other hand, is 99% white. The average annual household income is $18,000, and its residents have lived in a water crisis for 20 years. This is what the conventional wisdom really means. The Flint water crisis would have never happened to white people with means. So, how do we talk about the way that race and class shape access to water in the United States? When we explore other sites of crisis, Newark, New Jersey, Denmark, South Carolina, Puerto Rico, Lowndes County, Alabama, Navajo Nation, we find majority non-white areas with histories of divestment and abandonment. When we look for what unites them, we see their invisibility, as though if proper society just pretends these people don't exist, then their problems don't need tending to. Their very existence can be imagined away. And it's not just water. It's educational attainment, political representation, and health outcomes. These places and the people who inhabit them are plagued by long-standing quality of being overlooked and discounted. Though, these communities refuse to be known for their marginalization or be reduced to a stereotype. When we dig deeper and listen more closely, we find a life force that cannot be defeated. I'm Grace Gibson. And I'm Desiree Blutenthal. And this is Poison and Power, the Fight for Water, a Merrill Courage Project a partnership with the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof, Media for Social Justice. Episode 3, Blood Memory. History casts a long shadow in Flint, Detroit. The automotive industry created vibrant and thriving cities for multiple generations of Michiganers. The narrative surrounding these cities suggests that these used to be the best places to live and work in the country. Now they are known for their economic downturns, their good days long behind them, as people say. How do you live in the present or plan for the future when the past looms so large? The industrial powerhouses, General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler were based in these cities and helped them grow. Beginning as early as the 1940s, industry started to change. Some of the companies closed while others left for the suburbs or other states to avoid unions and high wages. Or they laid off workers because of new technology and automation. What was once the backbone of the city's economy started to deteriorate. With the factories gone, other businesses could not stay afloat. Populations of both Flint and Detroit plummeted and soon the tax base was also gone. But only some were able to leave. The Federal Housing Administration used policies such as redlining to keep minorities out of the suburbs systematically denying non-white residents the ability to move to more affluent areas. Further, the industrial sites left behind their piles of environmental waste, 
resulted in serious pollution issues which carry on to the present day. The great American promise of prosperity had evaporated. At the dawn of the industrial boom, the pursuit of that promise brought many people to Flint and Detroit, including the family of Art Race III, executive director and founder of We the People of Michigan. Art returned to his hometown of Flint immediately once the water crisis began, along with Gina Luster and Nayara Sharif, who we met in episode one. Art got busy using his background in organizing and movement building to mobilize the community. His working class, immigrant roots fundamentally shape who he is and how he works. My family um, kind of wound up in Flint uh, in the 40s and 50s as migrants from Texas. So they you know, came up, um, uh, you know, up the migrant trail. Uh, and um, in a lot of cases, right, at that period in time, Flint was very much this kind of beacon of hope for working people. Um, it was a place that, uh, where you could, the, the auto factories had just won historic union contracts. Um, you know, they were hiring. And so it was a place where you could, earn a, earn a, a decent wage, um, you know, working in the factory. And so when I was growing up, everybody, all of my family, everybody all worked in auto factories. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I was born to my parents. My parents were in high school um, in the eighties. And uh, it was really the beginning of the shift of Flint going from the 1950s highest per capita income city in the country to today where, you know, the poorest city in America, kind of that, that, that swing was a pretty intense one. And so, you know, for me, it was kind of seeing the first waves of layoffs and plant closures and watching a lot of my family lose the stability uh, that they had had for a couple of decades as, as folks begin to kind of lose work and um, slip back into poverty or just leave, just move, move away. Um, for me, you know, we might, you know, I, my parents who were, you know, very young, uh, there's a few things that I could share. One is that you know, one of the women who helped to raise me um, was my great-grandmother. Her name was Eloisa Sarabia Reyes, and she um, what, grew up in Seguin um, in Texas. Um, and so, you know, most days I spent with her, uh, you know, uh, at, over, over at her house. She made tortillas that she sold at our church and, you know, at some of the factories, uh, like where my grandpa worked and my uncles worked at the, at the Buick plant. Um, but she uh, was uh, just constantly telling me stories she's kind of the matriarch of our family so I would kind of help her every day uh when she was making tortillas and she would tell me stories what it was like for her growing up um and she would tell me stories of what it was like growing up in a you know in a segregated town in Texas where there were signs on some places some restaurants that said no Mexicans and no dogs um but she would always tell me mijito you're an American first which was her way of telling me that this country was just as much mine as it was anyone else's and I think you know there was a lot of this kind of spirit of 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 fight um, in my family, you know my great my great grandma. Everyone called her a ma. Um, I called her nana. She she was kind of this like source of 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 strength like in our family, but was also like no one fucked with her, right? Like at the at her funeral, like the priest called her feisty. Like she was like the priest was afraid of her. Like it it um she she was somebody that kind of like constantly like um was going through challenges head on and just like fiercely protecting her people her family you know and like I knew that like so much like growing up and see like that spirit 
you know, and how present that is kind of throughout, throughout, throughout my family. And, you know, I, I knew my, 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 my great grandmother, you know, passed away when I was in college. Um, and, you know, I, like my great, great grandmother was still alive when I was, you know, eight, nine. So you know, I, I think, I think for me, there is like this very deep, deep, like sense of like knowing the spirit of some of our, our folks, you know, I was just talking with my, 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 my grandfather the other day who I'm, I'm the third. So he's, he's the first the original. Um, and you know, he was just sharing some of his story about like what it was like, like getting to Flint, you know, and he was, he was four when he got here um, and didn't speak English. Um, and, you know, I think like, got the shit kicked out of him like a lot like a lot when he was when he was a kid um and I think for him like just growing up feeling like like different and all of those things like he just he he from a very early age like kind of became this like you know person who like hated bullies and would always take on bullies and the, the old stories of my grandpa are kind of like you know they're kind of like almost almost like myth, right? Some of the, <laughs> the kind of stuff that, that he, he was, he was a pretty, he was pretty wild back in the, in the day and, 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 and Flint and kind of had this, you know, reputation that no one, no one, no one fucked with him. Like uh, he, you know, it's always the, the joke. The only reason he was allowed to graduate is because he was going straight into the Marines. Um, but he, you know, uh, so much of like this, like came from this sense of like, you know, it was just him and my, my great aunt, my Tia Dolly, the two of them. Um, and he had to kind of figure it out on his own and knew like his, his inclination was like, well, I got to take, I got to take on the folks who are doing that. And I need to protect others that are there too, which is also part of the reason why the union spoke so strongly to him and why he got engaged in the union and then in union politics and why that's a big part of our our family was this sense of seeing um, what it's like when, you know, you are uh, taken advantage of or, or experiencing oppression or experiencing that and saying like, you know what, we actually, we have, we have some agency in this and, and we got to fight. Um, and I think that that spirit is very, very deep, you know, in my, in my family that I think goes, goes back quite a ways. Flint was the birth of the labor movement and the site of one of the biggest labor movement victories in the country's history. In the winter of 1936, the United Auto Workers Union continued a massive sit-in of 10,000 auto workers that lasted for 44 days and ultimately ended in success for the workers. This changed the trajectory of manufacturing labor and unions in the country, sending union membership skyrocketing following this victory. And that spirit of activism survives in Flint. You know, in uh, in sixth grade, I remember my uh, the factory my dad worked at at the time was on was on strike, um, and for me that was a really important and big moment. Um, I remember, I remember it was you know going into sixth grade, um, and I was anxious because you know my so just to take a step back. We had moved to a trailer park in Grand Blanc in the suburbs, um, right outside of Flint, uh, so that I could go to those public schools, me and, and then a bunch of my younger siblings. Uh, and I had just a ton of anxiety uh, around like, you know, class anxiety, quite frankly, like it was, it was, you know, moving at the time when Flint was really going through a lot of challenge, 
my parents decided to move us to this move to a trailer park in the suburbs where the schools were wider uh, where people had more money um, and unfortunately that meant the school system was significantly better at the time um, and so uh, I, you know I harbored a, a lot of anxiety around that like you know going to a school that was um, you know at the time it was like oh shit people have money here now you know I recognize it as a pretty middle class um, in some some parts of it upper middle class but a pretty middle class area but um you know, it, it, I think for me, there was so much of, of kind of the anxiety that I harbored, like, you know, being a kid who lived in a trailer park in the suburban school district where, you know, folks had money um, and we didn't. And that was very clear. Um, so, you know, I think for me, there was a whole lot of that. So going anyway, going into sixth grade, uh, the reason why this memory sticks out is because there's a bit of it that was tinged with some of that anxiety because my dad sat me and my two sisters and my younger brother who was sitting on my lap who's 10 years younger than I was or than I am. Um, uh, he sat us down and said, look, we're not going to be able to go school shopping this year, uh, which for, you know, for me as a kid who was already harboring a bunch of anxiety around like, Oh shit, we don't have money. Like other, like my friends from school, like we're not going to be able to go school shopping. It was just like, you know, fucking terrible blow. Um, but I remember my dad sitting us down and saying like, look, you know, there are times you got to sacrifice to fight for what we believe in. And this is one of those times. Um, the factory he was at was on strike. Uh, they, they got about $100 a week from the strike fund, um, which wasn't much, uh, you know, to support four kids. Um, uh, but we were out there every single day uh, with my dad uh, on the picket line. And I, for me, I remember the feeling of what that felt like. I mean, I grew up in a UAW house. You know, everybody was very active in their, in their uh, union locals. And so... I'd heard solidarity a lot, but this is the first time that I felt it. Seeing like other workers and people's families and community come out to support and people being there on the picket line, knowing individually we might be weak, but collectively we could be incredibly strong. So, you know, I had, I'd, I'd left uh, in, in 2012 to go to grad school. Um, and so I was, I was there, uh, you know, Boston kind of was, was, teaching and, 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 and studying at the, at the Harvard Kennedy School and then finished and the plan was coming right back to Michigan, but then my wife ended up getting a fellowship. Um, that was a really kind of beautiful opportunity for her, so we stuck around and I ended up, you know, working for CPD. And, um, you know, I was at my office at the time. I, so our main offices were in New York and DC, um, but there was a small crew of us, there were three of us that worked in Boston. And, you know, one of them is, you know, one of, still one of my best friends, um, her name is Wing Doan, uh, and Wing and I were sitting there, and she was about to move to New York, so we were having her going away party the, the next day, um, uh, Friday, um, and my friend Wani, that I had grown up with, um, that I'd known for a long, long time, um, called me, um, and she had just left the house of an undocumented family on the east side of the city. Um, and was just telling me the story of what was going on. I mean, she was really frantic um, and she was, you know, just telling me about how this family didn't know about the water crisis until Obama had declared a state of emergency, how they tried to go to get to one of these distribution centers that the state had set up, but didn't have ID because undocumented people had their IDs taken away in 2008, you know, by our then Republican Attorney General. Um, didn't have ID, so they were denied water, and that ICE had raided the grocery store. At least there were rumors of ICE raiding the grocery store in their neighborhood two weeks prior to that. And so, you know, they were afraid to they were afraid to to go and buy water, and they had an 11 month old. Um, 
and the mom had been drinking the water and breastfeeding and their kid was sick. And so, uh, you know, for me, it was this very just visceral, like, you know, hearing this. Cause like, you know, the water crisis had been going on before. Um, Naira, who I think a bunch of you all, you know, had talked to, who's a very, very close friend of mine. I've known Naira since I was like 15. Um, and, you know, I, like I'd been checking in with Naira a little bit, like, you know, you posted what's going on. Like when I was home over the, over, you know, the holiday break, just like, you know, because you know they had been working on on you know I mean she really had been fighting for a long time on that um and after kind of hearing this it was like it was just it was different right it was like it was it was it made it so very real for me it was like this is the same fucking neighborhood my family moved to in the 1940s and 50s and this is a family not dissimilar from my own but they're not looking for a union job or a functional education system like my family where they're looking for clean water and there's not pathways to get that and it's like the, the, all of the things that like we're told about particularly in flint especially in my family right around like this being a place of hope for working people that like over 60 years later you know we have a family who is struggling to get water. You know, Michigan is one of the most segregated places in the country. Um, and our politics are shaped by race. Um, and when we have, uh, you know, multi-generational economic devastation in places like Detroit and Flint and Pontiac and Benton Harbor and places that are almost entirely communities of color, predominantly black cities, um, you know, that have had, that have struggled multi-generationally. You know, I'm, 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 I'm 34. There's not people my age who grew up in Flint that are like, remember the good old days, right? It's just like, it's, it, we, it's been in struggle for a long time. Um, and we have that combined with the fact that huge rural parts of our state, the upper peninsula has been in a recession since 1992. Um, we have significant other places um, that have also experienced multi-generational economic devastation. And so we've created a very fertile ground for dividing conquer politics that tells some people the reason for your pain is because of others in pain. Um, and it's really rooted in stoking anti-black racism where people, you know, use say Detroit as synonymous with black folks as a dog whistle for black folks. And a lot of folks put the blame on challenges in the state on Detroit, right? As a way to say, well, this isn't this isn't your fault, right? In in X, Y, or Z rural place that like you're struggling. Like, you know, we know you're struggling. We acknowledge the pain. We know that like there's a real lack of any meaningful kind of economic opportunity. And if your kids um, moved away, they're probably never coming back. And if they stuck around, they're probably struggling to find work or maybe caught up in the addiction crisis. But it's not on you. It is that the state doesn't give a shit about you. The state cares about Detroit, but Detroit is corrupt and it can't govern itself. And so it squanders it. That is the narrative that gets built like time after time after time again, particularly in places like Detroit, especially, but also Flint and others. They they are responsible for the challenges that we're experiencing. It's this kind of classic divide and conquer. But we see that play out in a ton of ways. There's also a xenophobic narrative that blames immigrants for the challenges that we've experienced, particularly with our manufacturing economy. Um, and, you know, and also a lot of Islamophobic rhetoric too, as you know, we have, um, a like beautiful, substantial, like Arab and Muslim population, particularly in Southeast Michigan, we've seen a lot of fear mongering, um, happen around and, you know, in, in places further out in the state. So the combination of these things have shaped 
of what our state looks like, including things like the emergency management law, which is rooted in that. It's prioritizing like fin- like finances over human need. And it is also rooted in a narrative that deeply says that black and brown people can't govern themselves. And so they should not be able to. And so they need oversight by um, folks who are going to make smart financial decisions because they won't. Is rooted in this fundamentally racist, anti-black um, narrative that also advances privatization and austerity at the expense of having sustainable and robust public infrastructure that takes care of people. It's hard, right? It, it, like with like the intensity, um, uh, you know, that that we're seeing, like in so many of our communities, the intensity and the brutality of kind of our racist capitalist system has, you know, put on so many of our communities that like. I still like deeply, deeply believe that like we can persevere and we can build like a beautiful pathway to a future that we actually deserve if we do the work of building together. It's not, it's not easy, right? It's not easy and it's not quick, um, but it's worthy. Back in 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson declared a war on poverty in the United States and visited Kentucky on a publicity tour. As he drove around, LBJ was famously photographed on front porches with the residents of Martin County, on the far east side of the state, in the heart of Appalachia. Booming coal mines provided high-paying union jobs for some families and communities across the region. Though, when LBJ arrived, roughly 60% of Martin County was unemployed. The photo of LBJ with the Fletcher family of Inez, Kentucky, has come to represent all of Appalachia in one image, poor, white, and deprived. This is the picture of what Appalachians are to the rest of the country. In fact, not much else about Appalachia is known to people outside the region. All of the people and their histories, stretching across six or more states, depending on how you count, get distilled down into a single, disparaging idea. In this view, Appalachian people are hopeless, backward, passive, and stuck in a perpetual state of need and desperation. But Appalachians are unrelenting and refuse to be ignored. Activists in eastern Kentucky fight back against the water injustices they face, and push back on the idea that they will sit still and allow themselves to be perceived as pushovers, too weak to do anything about their own circumstances. Nina McCoy is a retired biology teacher from Martin County, Kentucky, and an active member of the Martin County Concerned Citizens. But even before the coal slurry spill in 2000 that intoxicated their water supply, Nina was connected to the rivers of her home and had fought for a clean environment in Appalachia. I'm Nina McCoy. Um, I taught biology for 31 years. And um, now retired and working with the Martin County Concerned Citizens. I grew up as a Navy brat uh, moving around the country, but uh, Martin County was always home. It was actually Warfield, which is uh, right on the river, the Tug River. It's the Tug Fork of the Big Sandy. And so uh, my grandmother lived in a house that was right on the river. So that river has always meant a lot to me. This kind of goes way back to the 2000 slurry spill. And um, 
at that time, um, since it was the worst um, man-made environmental disaster east of the Mississippi, it got a lot of national attention. And um, so when I, I got involved in that, when I saw that we were basically being treated as if we didn't have enough sense to know what was going on. And um, as a teacher, I thought that um, I needed to find out more. As I said, I love this community. I ha always have. And this, uh, this environment, I guess you'd say. And so I always wanted to make sure that we took care of it. As a biology teacher, I was the environmental club sponsor, and we did a lot of creek cleanups and roadside cleanups and things like that. And so that has always uh, sort of put me in the, I'm basically the token environmentalist for the county. And so they accept it and they're like, well, okay. Um, that got contentious uh, when the war on coal started and being an environmentalist uh, meant that you were obviously against coal. So if you wanted to recycle, then that meant you didn't love coal, anything, anything like that. Um, but, and so when we would try to have um, Big Sandy Watershed Watch meetings, it got less, we, we had less acceptance and we didn't have very many people showing up though the people were so fed up with the fact that our water, our drinking water was a problem. Um, and they tried to get help. And when they saw that Flint got noticed and we had never gotten noticed, um, they decided that maybe this was something that they needed to talk about. Um, you know, um, the problems with our water are, layered um the the first the the problems that we've had um with not trusting the water started in 2000 um, because of the slurry spill but there are so many problems and part of it is just the fact that the water system is incapable of well we're losing 72 percent of the water because of the the bad um, system that we have so that causes um, the people not to trust the water, but it also causes the water to be very expensive. So we've got a couple of things going on here. We've got um, people who are like, we can't afford this water to, and, and we don't trust it to drink it. Um, and um, we don't trust the officials who say it's all right to drink it. And so you've got a lot of different problems there. This new company that came in, they're now telling us that we're 50, thousand dollars in debt every month and so they're going to have to raise the water rates again and so the water board is like yeah looks like we're just gonna have to raise the water rates and i'm just like are you kidding me you this is a community where 40 percent is at or below the poverty level and and we already have the some of the highest water rates in the whole state you know, that would put our water rates at um, $55 a month just for minimum water. And then the sewer is going to put it at $88, at actually $89 a month. Now, a lot of people here live on $780 a month. That's the Social Security. 
income. That means that they're paying more than 10% of their income just for water and sewer. Um, you know, my thing is that I think that we are the tip of an iceberg. Um, we got noticed at some point in time, but the problem is just massive across this whole country, of course, the world. But, uh, and the problem is that we're not putting uh, money into a, uh, something that is not as noticeable. I mean, you know, build a new courthouse, that's pretty, um, but you don't fix problems that are sort of invisible, they're under the ground. Um, and so our, the United States has to take it serious in understanding, first of all, our tax money needs to go to um, help even the poorest communities. Um, and it's very important that our, our society understand the importance of fixing stuff. I mean, second law of thermodynamics will tell you that in any working system, it's gonna tear up. So instead of just having factories to manufacture new things, we need to understand how to fix things. That's the only way this world is gonna be able to stand us is if we learn to fix things instead of just making more and throwing the old ones away. Water Warrior Monica Lewis-Patrick is president and CEO of We The People Detroit, working on the front lines of environmental rights in Michigan. Mama Monica could be found in the streets throughout the summer of 2020 and heard over loudspeakers at major gatherings and marches in the city. She lives as a 21st century reincarnation of her radical ancestors, with their history and experiences running through her veins. I would say my background is one of being an educator. I was a therapist, uh, educator for about 12 years, and then um, managed a mobilized crisis unit for young people that were having a psychiatric emergency for about six years and then served the Honorable Councilwoman Joanne Watson as a public policy analyst uh, for uh, several years and, until I was selected by my, my peers and my, my sisters to become the head of We the People of Detroit. Uh, I was bullied as a kid all the way from elementary to high school. So being a kid that was bullied, I always seemed to have a great sensitivity for other people and people that were marginalized or targeted or harmed in some way. So I think that the more I found my own voice, uh, the bigger that voice became a part of my own transformation from trauma to, to transformation, uh, really seeing myself as powerful. Uh, and really able to lend that power to others that needed to be lifted. So uh, it's been an honor to serve. And as I've served, I think I've grown and I've uh, hopefully evolved as a human being, a more loving, caring human being. I don't think that I discovered water. I think water discovered me. And the reason I say that is because uh, it wasn't until I was in the throes of uh, the bankruptcy in 2013 and began to ask, okay, if we're gonna do this massive restructuring of debt, and if you're gonna decide that you're gonna leave the burden of that debt 
on the residents of Detroit and that you already know that uh, almost 40% of the population, 39% of the population, 39.6, I think is the exact number, are, are living in abject poverty. And you know that 60% of the households are headed up by single women of color, mostly black women, with anywhere from two to four children, usually helping and assisting an elderly parent or grandparent. And then 70% of the people that work in the city don't live in the city, which is also a tax burden on the city. Then why would you not at least consider doing a health study and a financial impact study on the feasibility of making this kind of drastic switch to a critical part of sustaining the health and wellness of a city? And the response I got uh, at several layers, and this is well documented, was that the judge, even in the last statement during the bankruptcy in his, his uh, in rendering his opinion, he said that he knew that there would be imminent harm. This is the word he used. There would be imminent harm by moving forward with the bankruptcy and with certain uh, legal uh, frameworks, but that it was more important for the business community of downtown Detroit to be able to come back. And so that to me told me in that moment, and I came back to my office and I said to the women, I said, we're in trouble because they have decided now that we are dispensable and that our children are dispensable and our families and our parents and grandparents. And it doesn't matter that we help build the middle class. And it doesn't matter that we put the world on wheels. And it doesn't matter the contributions to labor and art and music. They are fully prepared to let us die. And I think it's in that moment that it really became uh, evolution for me, that it had to go beyond just getting water on for Detroiters because people didn't care about Detroiters that it had to be about getting water on and connecting Detroiters and our struggle for the human right to water to all humanity's right, human right to water. And I think when I made that shift in my understanding and my consciousness, that as much as I love my city and my community, uh, that I really had to elevate my understanding. And one of the things that the Honorable Councilwoman Joanne Watson said to me uh, in 2014, she said, Black women are the mothers of all civilization. And so that means we have to love all of our children, even the wayward ones. And that means we have to make sure that all human life has access to water. And so she told us then, she used a phrase that I often use, she said, deputize yourself, because nobody's coming to save you. And so I often tell people, and I say it to myself, that I had to deputize myself. And so I started to get up every day from that framework. What can I do today to improve and advance the human right to water? And that's how I live my life. So we had a, a relationship with it, but it was, it was conflictual. And then I think the other thing is that, you know, there's a lot of blood memory for Black people around water and water uh, being weaponized. And so when you look at the history of Black folks in this country, you know, because of segregation, we weren't able to go to swimming pools or to be able to, you know, to learn to swim. So you have a large population of Black people uh, around the country. If they have not had interaction with water and learned to swim, they are very fearful of water.
just because of that historical harm and those kinds of racist policies. Uh, when you look at using water hoses as a way to weaponize water to control crowds uh, during the civil rights movements and uprisings, uh, when you look at the Middle Passage, uh, the transference of slave bodies across the ocean, uh, a lot of the history tells you, even the science says that sharks still today swim that pattern of the ocean where those bodies, uh, millions, over six million bodies lay at the bottom of the ocean. And so I think for uh, me, there is a, uh, a blood memory around water and water disparity and water harms. Uh, there is also a childhood of not having, I would say, a healthy relationship with water, but then also having still an admiration and love and feeling inspired by being around water. And the reason I would say yes is I really use my mom as a barometer of, you know, solid values and, and morals. And when she told me in 2014 that shutting off water was an act of war, and then began to quote the Geneva Convention, and said that even in times of war, you could not shut off your enemy from access. And then she got really quiet and said to me, you know that they will kill you about this water. Uh, I think too, that was sort of what I call a temple moment where I, I'm never gonna forget her voice and how serious she was. Uh, and so to me, also having her affirm the work is just another level of, of importance to me that it's a morally just fight to be in it. And so I often use a phrase from the Honorable Coleman Alexander Young, who said, if you find a good fight, get in it. And I believe the fight for the human right to water is a good fight. Art, Nina, and Monica embody the past through their work in the present. Shaped by the place they call home and guided by the rugged spirits of those who came before them, our storytellers in this episode embrace their histories to confront contemporary challenges. Like muscle memory, blood memory is a reflex acted upon as though there was no other choice, compelled by forces beyond our control, found deep within us. Summoning strength from migrants, striking union members, coal miners, the working poor, enslaved people, and civil rights protesters, water warriors may be distinguished by their race, class, and gender. They are united by their experience with adversity and their commitment to struggle for a more just future. This is Poison and Power, the fight for water and Merrill Courage Project. We are your hosts, Desiree Bluthenthal and Grace Gibson. This episode was written by Eileen Hull and Joel Cruz. Our musical score was composed, performed, and produced by Beck Trumbull. And the musical theme was inspired by Jillian Parker. Merrill Courage Radio is produced by Joel Cruz. Next time on Poison and Power. It threw me and my child into it from the beginning so that that gave me passion and then when i saw how it was affecting everyone around me i saw the human side of it 
and that has drove me for two decades. Find and follow us across social media platforms. If you like what you've heard here, tell some friends, leave us a review, and be sure to subscribe to More Courage Radio so you can get the next episode as soon as it drops.